everyone, and welcome to this edition of the Politically Incorrect Podcast. I'm Jim Williams, your host. You know, there's a lot of things going on on a worldwide basis, and this week we found out um, two huge situations. One, of course, is that the on-again, off-again summit with North Korea will indeed, at this moment, take place um, perhaps June 12th. Uh, it uh, it looks as if it's headed in that direction. So that is uh, something that uh, we're looking at and obviously we're going to be following. The other is the um, tariffs that were put forth by the Trump administration on uh, steel and aluminum and how they're going to impact uh, our relationship from a trade standpoint, not only with China, but with Canada, Mexico and the European Union who were also slapped with those tariffs. And uh, there's going to be a bit of a backlash, no doubt, from that. We already have started to see it. Uh, Canada, the EU, uh, and Mexico all issuing their uh, retaliatory situations. So we've got a lot of global issues. And when it comes to global issues, there's nobody who I like to talk to more about this than Joseph Hammond. Joseph is one of the top um, journalists when it comes to understanding world affairs from, def- you know, from the defense situation, from um, a NATO aspect, from a global economic standpoint. Joseph has it all covered. He joins us today from London. Joseph, it's good to hear from you. Good to talk to you, my friend, as always. Um, let's start with Iran. Uh, obviously, we exited the Iranian deal and um, I know you've had some reporting on what's going on in Iran since that time. Why don't you bring us up to speed? Well, I think it's been, you know, uh, very interesting to see how things have developed in Iran independently of Trump's, uh, President Trump's decision to remove the United States from the JCPOA, the Iranian nuclear agreement. Um, Kind of on the periphery of that story, that story has attracted so much media attention regarding Iran that there's. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of uh, things happening have gotten less attention. We've seen protests in Iran throughout this year uh, across the country, and these are protests are, are very different than the protests we saw in 2009 um, with the Green Movement when Obama was president. And, and the difference is those protests um, were specifically calling for reform uh, within the system. And some of the figures in the system uh, were in dialogue uh, with these reformers. It's a very much similar to uh, Tiananmen Square in 1989 in Beijing, where we have this, this memory of that as this great democratic uprising. But what the people were actually calling for was much more modest at the time. And that's a little similar to what was happening in 2009 in Iran. These protests we've seen in the last few months have been of a different character. They've been calling explicitly for regime change. Protesters have been you know, criticizing Iran's adventurous foreign policy in regards to the wars in, in Syria and Yemen, where Iranians are dying to uh, prop up uh, these regimes or Iranian allies, as the case may be. So that's a real that's that's a real first that we haven't seen. And I think that the removal of the JCPOA, you know, Trump's move in that regard puts increased pressure on the mullahs that run Iran uh, to to seek new policy. Um, so, you know, it's really a, a space to watch, um, you know, 
in the coming months to see how that will all play out because the regime is definitely under pressure in a way that they haven't been in, in quite some time. You know, to give some other examples, you know, you've had protests by farmers. Iran's in the midst of a, a big water crisis. In 2013, mm-hmm. I was at the Singapore International Water Week, one of the major uh, international water conferences, and there was a big delegation there from Iran, including a, a minister-level position uh, who I interviewed, and they were very concerned then about the the water crisis going on in Iran, and that continues to be an issue. We've had an ongoing protest in Iran from from truck drivers, um, from you know mystic, from the mystical Sufi order of, of uh, Muslims in Iran. Um, so there, we continue to see pressure on the regime in ways they really haven't felt pressure before. And then Trump's move with the JCPOA just puts additional pressure uh, on this regime. What does it do from the standpoint of um, the agreement that? Um... You know, many of the allies like the UK and Germany and others, um, does that put them in a bit of a bind or are they just in a wait and see attitude as to where they go next? I think that's a great question. I think that, you know, Iran is hoping that it can leverage the economic ties that it has built with countries uh, in Europe and leverage those ties to try to avoid the worst of the you know, of the U.S. removal from withdrawal from sanctions, in particular, hoping that these countries will continue to invest in Iran and continue to buy Iranian uh, pro- uh, products. You know, when I was in Qatar, I was the editor of an oil and gas obligation there. And, um, you know, I remember sitting across from a senior European uh, head of an oil company um, that was uh, based uh, in Qatar and, and rubbing uh, their hands in front of me about the prospect for how much work um, could be done uh, in Iran. You know, Iranian oil production has never reached where it was in 1979. So that's a huge mm-hmm. um, prospect for European companies. There's lots of other areas of, of business. And the business opportunities is such that it outweighs um, the concerns that uh, Secretary of State Pompeo raised uh, regarding Iran's behavior in the region. And it outweighs, you know, the other faults of the, the JCPOA, which, which many people at the time thought was a flawed agreement but one that was uh, needed regardless. So I think, you know, one of the things we may see um, and how this is going to shape out in Europe is in July, there will be a major uh, conference of the Iranian opposition that in the past has attracted, you know, senior European officials. The last year there was even a member of uh, uh, Emmanuel Macron's party uh, who attended this event and also senior U.S. officials as well. In the past, you've had, uh, you know, Bill Richardson, you've had Mm -hmm. uh, Giuliani, and, and John Bolton, they were both there last year. Bolton attended several years in the past, and now Bolton and Giuliani are, are senior figures um, in the Trump administration where they have you know, the potential to act on the policies that they've been advocating at these Iranian opposition conferences, which happen annually in, in Paris. So it'll be very interesting to see how that plays out, particularly because last year, at speaking at this event, John Bolton, though he was not the national security advisor called for, you know, regime change in Iran and that, you know, that regime change uh, would happen before 2019. Um, so we'll be interested to see now that he's in a position to try to actually uh, enact some of those policies, uh, what will happen. He might again attend the, that conference uh, this year, but that will be a good bellwether to see um, what the buy-in uh, is from the European uh, countries towards uh, renewed sanctions um, against Iran uh, in the long term. I think during the Obama administration and previous administrations, the U.S. showed flexibility with uh, granting waivers for certain countries and certain industries. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll see if this administration takes that uh, same policy, but I wouldn't bet on it. Right. I, I would agree with you on that one. Um, 
let's move from that now to NATO. You're going to be covering um, major get-together here. What's, uh, what's going on with NATO at this point? In July, we're going to have the major uh, NATO summit, which is an event that happens every uh, four years, a major policy event where the NATO member states come together and agree on joint uh, security policy. It's going to be very interesting because we've continued to see over the past few years the sort of development of, of caucus blocks within uh, NATO. You have, you know, members from, you know, the eastern countries, from, from Poland and, and the states that were once part of the Warsaw Pact, um, think that NATO's mission is the same as it was, you know, in, in 1989, that, uh, you know, the mission, mission should be to have a joint security treaty that is concerned about a future conventional war, uh, most likely with, with Russia. However, there's also, uh, you know, those that are very concerned about what's known as the Southern Front. They're very, you know, countries such as Italy, Portugal, Spain, and France, which have caucused together, you know, several times outside mm-hmm. of the NATO summit to discuss joint security policy, are very much concerned about what's going on in, in North Africa and the Sahel and further beyond. They're worried that these areas can become, you know, Libya and so forth can become um, areas where terrorists can establish bases to launch attacks on the European Union. They're also worried about the destabilization caused by these groups, which will um, increase the amount of migration we've seen from Africa and the Middle East um, to 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 Europe and, and to the NATO states. So this will certainly be one of the, the main issues there. And I spoke with a very senior member of uh, Prime Minister Theresa May's office on this issue uh, just last week. And he said, yeah, what well, that, you know, one of the main issues will be uh, Iraq and, uh, and Syria and the continued concern about the, the fight against uh, terrorism in the Middle East. He also mentioned um, that there is a strong chance uh, that uh, one of the main issues will be the need to increase spending uh, amongst the NATO member states. Now, under the terms of the Atlantic Charter, the NATO states are committed to spending 2% of their GDP on defense. However, very few of the uh, NATO states uh, meet uh, that requirement. So it'll be interesting to see how those issues uh, play out um, in in July on the 11th and 12th uh, in Brussels, where the NATO headquarters um, is as well. And you're expecting that um, President Trump will attend? Well, I think there's a good possibility that uh, President Trump uh, will attend. Uh, you know, the last one in 2014 was hosted by then Prime Minister um, Cameron of the United Kingdom and President mm-hmm. Barack Obama attended. So it would be traditional for the you know U.S. head of state to attend. I think that that President Trump, having you know traveled to Europe now and spoken to allies, um, there's some real concern uh, about uh, how the U.S. the current U.S. administration uh, views NATO. And I've been to several NATO conferences and, and witnessed that firsthand. I think those concerns are a little bit overblown. I mean, yes, Trump uh, did criticize. NATO during the campaign, but since elected, he's taken a much different uh, tone. I think he signaled a different direction when he appointed James Mattis as Secretary of Defense, which, who many people forget, uh, was the former supreme uh, commander of NATO. So I mm-hmm. think that signals that this administration has a, a, a deeper regard for NATO than it might first appear. Okay, now we're going to take a little dovetail over since you started the NATO situation. And talk a little bit about the European Union. Now, uh, no, it's really, really early uh, with regard to these trade sanctions. But um, where do you do you think that um, 
the UK and uh, the rest of and the European Union will find uh, other trade partners. I was looking this morning, as a matter of fact, talking about uh, orange juice. I was just picking up something there that they're preparing, the EU is preparing to start to um, uh, work closer with Israel and other uh, countries to uh, to bring oranges in to replace what might have been coming over from the United States. It will be very interesting to see how the um, Brexit situation uh, plays out. I mean, the short answer, the safest answer is to say nobody knows. Um, and, yeah. But to pick up on, on oranges in particular, uh, there's uh, some interesting uh, opportunities uh, there for trade benefits um, for the United Kingdom uh, and also for, for Africa. Mm-hmm. Two years ago, I believe, the tariff on citrus uh, coming from Africa to the European Union countries was 3.4%. And that mm-hmm. raised, apparently, um, Drew's concerns from farmers in southern Mediterranean countries, in particular Spain, um, mm-hmm. which is an orange producer. And that tariff was raised uh, otherwise, inexplicably, uh, to 16%. So now wow. if the United Kingdom leaves um, the EU, which it will do next year, sure. uh, there's an opportunity to uh, reap benefits from trade from African countries who previously had to do those tariffs. And this will benefit you know, African farmers, um, mm-hmm. and it will benefit United, United Kingdom consumers. There certainly is a push with the United Kingdom to reengage with the Commonwealth, which are, the former, uh, which are mostly countries that were former colonies uh, right. of the British Empire and are now independent. All members of the Commonwealth are equal. Um, and, you know, trade opportunities there is, is certainly one possibility. Um, there, I think the great hesitancy comes from, you know, India and, and Pakistan and, and in Bangladesh, these, these massive countries who really don't mm-hmm. need that perhaps as much as some of the other countries in, in the Commonwealth do. And uh, it'll be very interesting to see how that plays out uh, for the uh you know, EU side. I think, the, you know, Theresa May, I think the government in the United Kingdom is looking for quick wins in terms of trade and Brexit, and mm-hmm. we'll start to look around the map for some. So I mentioned the Commonwealth, the United States, you mentioned oranges, um, mm-hmm. that, you know, that's something that could be, you know, uh, addressed looking forward, and just to have, you know, a whole bunch of quick wins in trade as it starts to build uh, a new trade policy. It's interesting, you know, as you remember the few months ago, the nerve agent attack, which occurred mm-hmm. here in, in, in the UK, and, and luckily, uh, the victim of that uh, survived, as did his daughter. But the United Kingdom was very, uh, you know, forthright in, in, in seeking uh, recompense for that. And uh, there was a diplomatic tip for tat with Russian diplomats being expelled mm-hmm. from a number of countries, in, including the United States. But one of the further moves that wasn't available to the May was sanctions against Russia. That's because as a member of the European Union, mm-hmm. that sort of policy has to be, you know, done collaboratively with the other members. And there's right. no way you could have gotten that sort of policy approved in Brussels without the mm-hmm. consent of, you know, the Eastern partner countries, you know, Poland and sure. Hungary and other countries in that region, which have a profoundly different view of Russia and its place in the world than prevails in London or some of the other capitals uh, in the European Union. Let's talk a little bit, um, you know, you were talking earlier about Iran. Let's talk a little bit about Iran deal, how do you expect if a summit comes up, it it may not come up in June with uh, North Korea, but it comes up in a relative, you know, soon, you know, summertime. Will what happened 
with the Iranian deal in any way impact the North Korean deal? I think that it, the, the, the two are very important to consider. The United States does not want Iran to be in the situation in 10 years that North Korea is in today, where it holds, I'm not going to say all the cards, but it holds a significant bargaining position because of the fact that it already has achieved nuclear weapons power status. And mm -hmm. that, you know, and if anything, the continued deliberations with over this summit, and if it's going to happen, you know, this month or, or next month or when it's going to happen, um, proves the point that it is so important to get uh, Iran right if you're concerned about nuclear proliferation mm -hmm. and you get that situation right. Um, but I do think that is, you know, you know, one of the things, you know, people have made the case that, you know, given the United States decision vis-a-vis -vis Iran, how could mm -hmm. North Korea enter into an agreement uh, with the United States in, in good faith? And I think that's why it was so important that Pompeo was bringing up the issues uh, that the United States continues to have with Iran in terms of its support for, you know, terrorist groups around the region. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Hezbollah, which is an Iranian proxy, has killed more Americans than any other terrorist organization except for Al-Qaeda. Mm -hmm. um, so that's legitimate concern. And, and, and North Korea knows that it doesn't have uh, that, that sort of baggage. But there are other reasons it could be skeptical, not just about what Trump did. I mean, look at what happened with Obama and his decision to uh, take uh, military action against Libya. Libya was a country that was in a similar on the path to developing nuclear weapons, agreed to develop the two desist from that in a sort of quid pro quo arrangement vis-a-vis mm -hmm. -vis the United States would not attack uh, Libya. And less than a decade went by and the Obama administration was involved in a military intervention in, into Libya. So I think that both those examples weigh very heavily on the mind of uh, North Korea. I think that we have a situation here where the sanctions have really had an impact and that North Korea is looking for some sort of deal. We could be in a situation where North Korea is up to its usual tricks, where there will be some sort of breakthrough. You know, mm -hmm. we, we apparently got very close to one in the early 90s, when, you know, on, on the Bill Clinton administration, you know, mm -hmm. Madeleine Albright uh, fair, fair, famously brought uh, Kim Jong-il, uh, you know, a, a basketball signed by Michael Jordan. And there right. seemed to be, you know, a, a, a great opportunity for breakthrough. And then here we are today, uh, almost 20 years uh, or more later. So I think that, uh, you know, those, you know, we need to be careful of that North Korea is, is, is attempting to do something like that. But again, we got to give peace a chance. And I think that, you know, you know, if Trump is able to achieve, you know, some lasting results from this, uh, you know, conference, it will be a major breakthrough and it's, and it's worth uh, attempting. Um, I'm a little bit concerned that the, the diplomatic bureaucracy is not prepared for a summit as momentous as this, which is why if it does get pushed back to July, it will just give you know, uh, Pompeo, John Bolton, and the Trump administration more time to repair and deal with some of these finite issues. But all the signs we've seen from the North Koreans is that they want to make a deal. How concerned they are about, you know, holding their end of the bargain in that deal uh, is unclear. And certainly, as you brought up, you know, U.S. past diplomatic history with the Iranian agreement and with Libya may give them um, cause for concern. Well, I would think that, you know, Kim Jong-un has been terrified that he gives up uh, the nukes and ends up like Muammar Gaddafi. Exactly, exactly. Which is why you know we've we've heard them discussed already that there's the potential that the the U.S. 
would, you know, offer some sort of security guarantee vis a vis the Korean Peninsula. I think mm-hmm. that the one thing that North Korea has that Libya does not have is that Libya basically had no friends. And North Korea does have a friend in, in China. And China is really the, the key to the success uh, of any peace initiative on the Korean Peninsula. So if we can get China to be a large stakeholder in, in solving this problem, maybe he would feel compelled enough to abandon his nuclear weapons or ostensibly abandon, abandon them. Um, again, we have the same problems we have with uh, you know, Iran, which is enforcement. How do we know uh, that he did, in fact, disarm all of his nuclear weapons you know, we, we know that after the invasion of Iraq in 2003, you know, there was some nascent capacity, some secret plans and so forth of weapons of mass destruction that have been buried in various places. So we can never fully know, um, you know, in terms of enforcement. Uh, that's another issue that will have to be addressed. What about, um, I mean, from your standpoint, you're someone who's constantly out there checking on uh, the hotspots and, and what's going on from a uh, military side. What are some of the things that uh, are in your notebook right now that uh, either concern you or you're looking forward to looking into over the next uh, couple of months? Well, one of the things I don't think that has gotten as much attention um, as it should uh, is the increased Russian role in Africa. Russia is training troops now in the Central African Republic. Um, it's one of the countries that was um, quick to uh, re-engage with the government of Zimbabwe uh, follow, following Mugabe's fall from power or coup that removed uh, the longtime ruler of Zimbabwe. It signed very interesting security agreements as well with uh, Mozambique, which is now facing um, a renewed insurgency in the north. And this has gotten very little attention. I think the Washington Post did one article on this, um, but it has gotten very little attention. It's definitely an issue um, that I'm concerned with. And so what's coming up next for you? I mean, I know you're going to be hitting the road for a summer road trip here. Um, Always interesting to to delve into your passport and where you're headed. Yes, I'm going to be uh, covering the the NATO summit uh, in in Brussels, uh, Belgium. That's something I'm looking at. I'm also going to be looking at some of, uh, you know, in the lead up to that, some of the security initiatives that uh, Portugal has taken regarding uh, terrorism. Um, it's the only major Western country which has never had a terrorist attack. So those are some of the issues I'm going to be um, looking into in the next few months. Well, Joseph Hammond, thanks so much. And uh, it's always a pleasure. And by the way, you know, it wouldn't hurt you to sneak in Wimbledon while you're there. I mean, come on. That would be fantastic. <laughs> Go to SW19. I know the, I know the stop on the, uh, on the, uh, on the tube there. So. On the tube, yeah. Yeah, just SW19, <laughs> write it down. It'll get you right there. Um, always a pleasure, Joseph, and uh, we'll chat again soon. Thank you. Yes, always a pleasure. Thanks to Joseph Hammond, and we'll be back with more of the Politically Incorrect podcast right after these words. Let me tell you a little bit about my friends at BitTrust IRA, okay? The world of cryptocurrency is both exciting and daunting, okay? It's not a place for rookies. Look, if you don't have cryptocurrency like I do and millions of others in your existing portfolio, you are making a mistake. But now I know you want to take advantage of Bitcoin, but you don't know how. You want to add Bitcoin to your retirement account. Look, 
you're always wanting to add diversity to your portfolio, you know, and why not look at innovative investments, right? Well, I'm going to tell you what, my buddies at BitTrust IRA are going to help you do this in a seamless and secure way to add cryptocurrency to your portfolio. Their team handles the entire process. They make it easy, okay? Now, their team becomes your team. They explain everything to you in a step-by-step manner. Very easy, okay? They answer every one of your questions. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to download a free copy of their cryptocurrency IRA investor's guide. That's called the cryptocurrency IRA investor's guide. It is free, and you can get it at bittrustira.com slash podcast. That's B-I-T-T. R-U-S-T-I-R-A dot com slash podcast. B-I-T-T-R-U-S-T-I-R-A dot com slash podcast. Or if you prefer to call, that's not a problem either. All right, you ready? Here's the numbers. 855-642-8800. That's 855-642-8800. Call the folks at Bidtrust IRA today. You're going to thank me for it. I know you will. Welcome back to this edition of the Politically Incorrect Podcast. All right. Now, if you have not yet subscribed to the Politically Incorrect Podcast, it's a very simple thing to do, okay? We are free and we are attainable at the iTunes store. That's right. We're part of the Apple Podcast uh, family. Also, Google Play. Blog Talk Radio. Now, if you are like me and you like to get your podcasts via different types of podcast apps where they offer a number of outstanding programming, well, we're on the top three, which is, of course, Stitcher, Spreaker, and, of course, the TuneIn app. Now, that accounts for 200 million people out there who have downloaded those apps. All you have to do is search the Politically Incorrect Podcast with James Williams, and it'll pop up there. Now, Once you see it, all you have to do is hit it as your favorite, and we will be delivered free once a week to your phone or to your tablet or to both. All you got to do is sign up. So please do that uh, today. Also, kind of a fun thing, and that is many of the personal assistants, of course, the Apple personal assistants, the Google personal assistants, and the Amazon Echo group all also will help you. So let's say you want to, you know, Got your iPhone out there, and you want to listen, just say, hey, Siri, please uh, play the Politically Incorrect podcast with James Williams, and it'll pop up. Same is the case with Google and our good friend Alexa with the Amazon Echo. So all simple things to do, six different places to find the podcast. Please go out, subscribe to it today. All right. Okay. Thanks very much. Speaking of thanking you very much, we'd like to thank our special guest today. Our expert on world affairs, and that, of course, is Joseph Hammond, who was kind enough to join us from London. And next week, we were going to go out and we're going to find out how much a celebrity endorsement is worth these days. Um, back in the day, it used to be worth a lot. Today, does it really help? I'm going to talk to Shelley Saltman, uh, who is a legend in television and in promotion. And Shelly's going to talk to us about um, celebrity endorsements, 
are they really worth it? Okay, so that's what's coming up next week. So until I see you next time, have a wonderful week. And for the staff here at the Politically Incorrect Podcast, we wish you a very safe and enjoyable week. Take care. 